Hi, it's Chad, and you may have noticed that this is a shorter podcast interview. We're still doing the full 60-minute interviews, but with the private membership that we have going, we're reserving the last half of the interview for questions specifically for membership. We're full this year, but we will be opening up more spots in 2025. So if you want to stay on top of that, please head over to our website, industrialized.com, and fill out your name, and we'll add you to the waiting list. Thanks for tuning in. We really appreciate your support. Hey, Sean, good to see you again, my friend. Thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to do another interview. Thank you for having me, Chad. Well, I, I thoroughly enjoyed our last conversation and I had a lot of great feedback from it. So it was natural to bring you back on. And I've been following along with Dolphin over the last uh, several years. And you guys had a big year last year. Uh, and first, I guess I got to say congratulations on winning the silver award for development of the year. Uh, big development just outside of Dallas, 2.3 million square feet, if I remember correctly. Uh, what, what can you tell me a little bit more about that development? Sure. Well, um, I'm going to say first that I don't control my LinkedIn account. Our, uh, our head of branding does because I would have a problem posting anything that's a silver award. um, The project itself is a place called Mesquite. And um, for those who don't know it, and many probably wouldn't if they didn't live in Dallas, uh, Mesquite is a very working class area and you have some of the best workforce in all of Dallas. And so it's an area that we've chosen over the past probably um, you know, six or seven years to really expand because what we've found is that employers flock there given the access to the labor pool and the price of real estate is not that relevant. It's really about one's ability to attract the workers. And so if they can attract the workers there and they don't have to pay them more per hour, um, what that translates to is a lower logistics cost overall for them. And so we we own a ton of product there and we lease it up like hotcakes. And uh, that project that you mentioned got leased up in, I mean, I don't even know if we had a month downtime uh, before it was completely leased uh, or at least the first phase of it. And we're completing the second phase now and uh, hopefully everything will uh, continue as it was in terms of the demand. So a lot of people last year used the cliche real estate term pencils down. Everyone was just a little nervous. Interest rates went up fastest pace in several decades. Everyone hit the pause button, but you guys were quite active. So you did that large multi-million square foot development. You added several hundred thousand square foot buildings. What, what was your thought process when you were going into 2023? Interest rates are starting to go up. You're still pushing forward on, on acquisitions and developments. What was your thought process like in 2023 to, to forge forward? Well, I'm just going to uh, correct some things. Um, for us last year was not very active. So, you know, you contrast that with the year before and we probably closed two and a half billion in deals then. And last year was maybe a billion. And so for us, that's a very down year. Uh, so it may have appeared that we did a lot, but it only appeared that we did a lot because nobody else did much. Mm-hmm. And, um, so a lot of the developments, including the development that you had mentioned earlier, those 
came about before 2023. <clears throat> so we built them and completed them in that time frame, but that's just because the development cycle takes some time. And so what did we feel? We were very cautious um, last year. And so if you look at some of the deals we did, um, I can give some examples. We did, you know, um, at the time it was, I, I think it was the largest deal in Orange County, California last year. And uh, we bought that from a particular open-ended fund that had some redemptions. And we bought it for effectively land cost. And mm -hmm. it was, you know, class A minus product as infill as it gets next to Disneyland. And um, it's just irreplaceable. And so what we were doing was buying assets at numbers that we had not been able to achieve because of the competitive set out there. And so we were buying assets at effectively high value added returns and very low price per foot for product that's in the most core of markets. And so our target last year was to really focus on um, risk mitigation and picking up product at significant discounts to replacement cost in irreplaceable locations. And so it was a very cautious and intentional approach. We did not transact at all on a new acquisition front in any secondary markets, except for, I would say, one of our vehicles, which is our, our iOS vehicle. But uh, for, the mo for, for all of our value add fund deals, it was all in uh, uh, what we call coastals. So that would be, you know, uh, the, you know, Jer New Jersey, New York area, um, the California area, uh, Seattle, and, you know, South Florida. Those are, call it for us, at least the primary coasts. I love how you said that a billion dollars worth of transactions was a slow year. <laughs> That, that, that would probably be a, a an epic year for most accounts and measures, but that was a slow year for you. What what does twenty twenty four look like? Uh, Put it on your on your crystal ball glasses. Um, we don't have an for better or worse. What we don't do is give uh, targets acquisition targets per region, and that may sound crazy to some people. Because how do our deal teams know what to buy and what the capacity is? And what we do is we let the best deals rise to the top, and that's how we select them. And if we're overweighted in one area or another, then we make that determination, and that will go into what we select or not. And so what do I anticipate? I anticipate we are going to see more deals, and we already have, because the sellers who are out there today, uh, whether they come by way of off-market, which is predominantly what we buy, or the on-market deals, they're real sellers. And so they have a need to move the product. And they're realistic about today's pricing. And so uh, I anticipate this year to be far more active. And um, yeah, that's, that's how I feel. How much more active? I can't tell you because unlike, I mean, um, the GFC, which you know I, I experienced and many others I'm sure on this call, uh, you knew where we were at. You didn't know if it was at the full bottom, but you knew where we were at. In this cycle, we haven't received or experienced the real economic tumult. You've had interest rates rise, 
but you're not sure when that needle is going to drop, right? And so you feel like you're catching a falling knife when you're, you know, going after deals because you haven't seen the hardships yet, at least in our space, really on the, the property owner side. It's really been felt by other sectors like office, et cetera. And um, so the question is, have we turned that corner? And if so, what's 2024 going to look like? And I can tell you, it's um, going to be very binary, meaning certain markets are not going to do very well. And uh, even further, if you look at a market like Dallas, I mentioned East Dallas. Well, if you look at a place like South Dallas, that's where we have no exposure. There's a reason. Land is cheap out there, no barriers to entry, and you can rent cheap product if you're a company looking to lease out there, but there's no labor. And you have so much product coming online. And so in markets like that, my belief, and I'm happy to be wrong on this, is you're going to have rental rate decline. Those who are new in the space or new meaning um, younger, so they haven't seen cycles, uh, like many of the people in my office, frankly, uh, the younger guys, they think rents are just going to keep going up. But we forget in down markets, what happens is you have a lot of supply and you just don't have the demand. And what happens is the rents go down. And so you have to be cautious as to where you execute and recognize the simple supply demand fundamentals, which I think are the real drivers of our business or the difference between those who succeed long-term and those who succeed because they get lucky because the market props them up. I don't Great know if I had a question, but you, you did. And, and there's a couple of strings I want to pull on on there and some questions uh, are coming in and I will get to those questions in, in a minute on. So a couple of things to come to mind. You mentioned that there's some markets you think are going to be strong and you think think there's markets you want to avoid so dallas being one of them what um, just so I, i'm saying not dallas so dallas just one sub market so every market is different and real estate's local you have to mm -hmm. know that market so you mentioned labor being a key driver of that in conjunction with supply and demand if there's too much supply if there's not enough labor that could be an, an issue you want to avoid when you're looking at a market, do you look at everything holistically, the whole thing, or do you look property level first and then look at the market? Or how do you actually make decisions on whether it's, and perhaps it's back of the envelope math first, and then you dig into it further. But when you're looking at a potential market to get into, what's your high level underwriting process? Well, it starts like this. Um, we methodically determine which markets we want to be in based on fundamentals of those markets. Um, we're in, you know, most of the large metros in the U.S., uh, those with the right fundamentals and some that don't have the right fundamentals, but they have certain maybe attributes in the market that we like. Um, and once we determine that we want to be in that market, we take a very methodical approach. And I've used that word again, but it's an important word for us uh, because we don't like to rush into things. We uh, believe that, um, you know, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And so you go slow, you make the determination of where you want to be in a market, and then you learn that market or that you want to be in that market and you learn that market cold. And then we'll apply our 
a proprietary last mile scoring system to different areas within a market. So say Dallas is an example. We'll say where within Dallas are the optimal last mile areas. And we have uh, a myriad of different uh, variables that we've used to determine um, you know, what the score invariably says. I think I might've talked about that in the last, uh, the last podcast we had, but for those who don't remember or weren't listening, um, we've come up with a system over the years uh, that helps us determine what the best last mile location is. And as a testament to that system, if you look where we determine our, the top locations in given markets, um, on average, Amazon will have one of their AMZLs, their last mile distribution facilities, within a half mile at most from where we're at. And so, of course, Amazon's not following us, but, you know, if anything, it, it's a testament to the validity of that score, because if anyone knows last mile, it's Amazon. So back to how we select what we buy. We determine the optimal last mile locations, and we have several different scores, one of which is catering more to labor, and one of which is um, focusing on fulfillment to different households. Sometimes they mix, sometimes they don't. Once we find those right locations, then our boots on the ground uh, determine the specific properties within that sub-market or that X on a map that meet our property level criteria. And then it becomes a, an old school roll up your sleeves and either knock on the doors of the owners who we know or utilize leasing brokers, which we um, use far more than any investment sales guys and buy the assets individually that we love. So a great example of what we did there is in Otay Mesa, uh, for those who don't know, Otay Mesa is um, in San Diego area and it's on the border of Mexico. And we're firm believers in nearshoring and the increased demand for nearshoring, especially with the um, supply chain interruptions during the pandemic. You know, if you can make your goods really cheap in Asia, that's great. But if you can't get the goods, that's a big problem. And so Mexico is a great alternative to that. Plus, it provides that access to cheaper labor. And with NAFTA or whatever it's called today, um, you have the benefit of having products assembled in Mexico or manufactured there. And you have some component of assembly in the U.S. and you can slap a Made in America sticker on there and you're not paying, you know, hefty tariffs. And so we recognized that and we said, how are we going to access that market? We determined the best locations within that market. And then our team went in and bought buildings anywhere from 50,000 feet, 80,000 feet, 100,000 feet, one at a time in these smaller transactions, ultimately accumulating several million feet and giving ourselves a very strong position in the market. Your portfolio is about 50 million square feet right now? Something like that, yeah which is a, a crazy number that that's a staggering amount of real estate to keep track of when you're looking to add a property are you benchmarking any new property to what you currently have or does that building have to stand alone on its own every building has to stand on its own i've made the mistake in my career not doing that where we buy another asset because we believe that it's going to bolster 
the pool of assets that are already there. For example, if we have some class A minus buildings and we decide, you know what, we're gonna buy this larger class A building because as a whole, this will be a better portfolio. And what we found or I've experienced is it doesn't always work. That especially in down markets, what you experience is that every building has to stand on its own. And that gives us the flexibility to buy and sell those buildings and profit on them irrespective of the market cycle. So in yesterday's market cycle, we would sell big pools. In today's, as you had mentioned when we were talking before this uh, podcast, was you had great user owner-user demand. And so did we. And so by buying the best assets in these given markets or building them, and they're standing on their own in terms of profitability, you're able to monetize those assets and profit from them based on whatever the market is wanting to eat then, as opposed to trying to feed the market what you think it should eat. The market will always tell you what to do. And so every asset we buy is on a standalone basis. Now, that doesn't mean that we um, will not buy additional assets to bolster a portfolio, uh, or if we feel we want a stronger density in a given area and get more exposure to that market. Um, but still, every property we buy has to stand on its own. And you will never see, although we have heavy portfolio modeling, at an investment committee, somebody saying, well, this particular asset, if we add it in there, it's going to increase our overall portfolio value or um, you know, fund value, whatever bucket it's in. It's always, does this property work on its own? What are its attributes? Is it what the market demands? Very well said. On that property level side, then, are you focused primarily on class A or class A minus distribution warehousing space? Only, only class A. The only time we'll buy class B type product is if it's super infill. Like for example, we're buying a building right now in Jersey um, and it's just, they're infill and you didn't have new product and that's all there is to it. Uh, you know, depreciation is not only a tax thing, it's a real thing. Your properties get less valuable with age and they also require more maintenance and they become obsolete in many respects. Now you're going to have anomalies to that in these very, very infill markets where tenants don't have an alternative. So, you know, you could have an, an extreme use in, in, in certain areas in the Meadowlands in Jersey, where you have buildings that like literally have 50 foot truck ports and like people will make do and they'll make do because there's just no other space and they have to hit those rooftops. And so in those cases, we will, we will buy assets of lower quality, but they're not lower quality as they relate to the market. They're just because there isn't anything else out there. And it's very difficult to redevelop these sites because the sites themselves are so expensive and just doesn't make financial sense. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you look at our average portfolio age, and I think it's 53 million feet right now, it's probably 2008. Hmm. So it's, it's newer product and newer product can accommodate the widest array of tenants because you'll have some who will appreciate that clear height, some will appreciate the speed bays and, uh, you know, the how much power we have in the building, the parking, you name it. And you're able to cater to the widest variety of, uh, you know, buyers for that matter, calling, calling tenants buyers. Within your portfolio of tenants, you, you're seeing trends in terms of what 
they actually require from the building. So a, a few questions on that of ceiling heights. Are you seeing a certain ceiling height that's being required right now? Uh, the, the column spacing, the grid, the amount of doors, the depth of the truck cord, the amount of power. Are you seeing certain requirements that tenants just need to have? Or if you build a building with 32 or 36 foot ceilings, do you find that tenants just accept that? Or are you hearing resoundingly that there's certain things that tenants just need to have in an, in a building? Um, it's a good question. I can tell you our buildings are, you know, compared to our competitive set in the market, they're usually very modern. And so it's rare that we'll hear that our building doesn't have an attribute from uh, clear height or something like that. And that's because we're very intentional in what we buy. Um, it has happened. Uh, you know, smaller buildings we'll build. We won't build to, you know, 40 clear or 36 clear. Uh, we may build to 32. Um, I know I, I take that back. So for the most part, we build to 36. But um, maybe it's because of the buildings that we have that, that we don't really hear that. Uh, parking is something that's important for certain tenants. And um, we've gone out of our way to add su substantial parking at a lot of cost too, right? Because you're, you're eating into what, let's say you're building a property, you're eating into, you know, your leasable area or your leasable enclosed area. Uh, but we know that a lot of tenants really, especially e-commerce oriented tenants, really need a lot more parking. And so in many respects, if you're infill, parking is the new clear height, which mm -hmm. If there's something of real importance for a tenant, uh, if it's going to be anything, it's their ability to park out there, whether it's parking for for uh, you know employees or whether it's parking for you know their vans or or trucks or storing materials outside, whatever it is, it's the parking because the more infill you are traditionally, the quicker that's that those goods are turning inside a warehouse. So unless you're Amazon or very sophisticated and call it the last mile space or the fulfillment area, very often they could be floor stacked and it doesn't matter because they're churning those goods very quickly. And so clear height is of less importance. The proximity to the actual end consumer is, whoever that consumer is, uh, or proximity to the workforce and so property attributes, at least as we're leasing space, rarely come into play. The one that we have had some issues with of late has been power. Mm -hmm. And certain tenants require more power. And because of pandemic issues that still linger, in order to get things like switch gears and certain power components, it's taken ridiculous amounts of time, like in excess of 18 months in certain cases. Oh. And, and so you can be finished a building, have ordered certain electrical components that you need in order to power your building. And they're taking, you know, in extreme cases, like 18 months to come in. And so you're just sitting there. And so uh, if tenants need something, they need that power to actually, you know, operate in the warehouse, at least for the most part. Uh, and if you want to increase that power there, you have another problem and that's building those transformers. And so that's been the biggest hiccup that we've found as it relates to specific criteria that tenants have wanted that we've had trouble meeting. Uh, and we've gotten really creative and manufactured those components. And it's helpful to have this, you know, nationwide platform and access to all kinds of 
contractors and and you know subs across the country with different development teams and construction teams in different regions because for example we couldn't get something done in you know the dc area we needed something so what did our team do well they had it manufactured in you know central florida and they were able to ship it there and so you know having that wide reach allows us to mitigate those issues as much as possible and benefit from the fact that everyone in our market is often suffering from them but those who have the resources and the reach are able to accommodate those tenants quicker and then get them into the spaces and inevitably command a better rent yeah there, there's certainly challenges on that and i think that speaks to why there's an appetite for more onshoring is uh if, if there's supply chain snarls and something being made in china and all of a sudden you need that one part to finish a project whether it's a switch or a transformer that that can bottleneck the entire process whereas having things made in north america i i think that there's a real appetite to alleviate those supply chain snarls and a quick story of a building that that i bought we had to get a new overhead door, which was part of the architectural aesthetic. And it was just, it was a very simple overhead door. It took 13 months to get it in, uh, which that was the final piece of the project. It took 13 months to get it in. So yeah, the, these supply chain issues are are crazy. Uh, are you, are you looking at solar on any of your buildings? Kind of talking about that power standpoint. Are you, is that on your radar to add solar or put that in? Yeah, we have it on a bunch of buildings now we have an entire solar platform where we're putting it in on millions and millions of feet i, I can't give you the exact number because i don't have it in front of me but um it's we have it nationwide and so there are certain states where it's of real benefit to do it and you can get a lease from uh, a power company who's going to sell it into the grid uh, and there are certain states where like texas for example um where it's difficult to sell back into the grid or because they have cheaper alternatives, it doesn't make sense to sell back into the grid. And therefore, you know, we're not going to per se invest that money in it uh, unless a tenant wants it, but we're doing it in many locations throughout the country and we're leasing that space. So it's a good point, Chad, because we came up with this many years ago. We didn't come up with the solar concept, but we embraced it many years ago for all kinds of reasons that make sense both for the environment, but also for uh, financially speaking. And, and call it the best ideas which take hold are those that actually incentivize from a capitalist standpoint, uh, the those spending those money and investing the dollars to do it because they're getting a financial benefit from it. So not only is it a good thing, but you'll jump on it, not because you're being an altruist, but because it actually benefits both the environment, but also your bottom line. And so what we found is that here was space in our buildings that we had never underwritten for, and yet we could lease. And so that's a big benefit. And today, if you have a good solar lease on your building, um, it's going to be marked at the same or virtually the same cap rate as any other rental payment that you're receiving in your space. And so that's a real incentive for people to do this. And, um, We've embraced this uh, many years ago. A buddy of mine who uh, is the global head of, now it's called sustainability, but he was the global head of energy of a particular uh, very, very large asset manager. Um, 
he had acquired a particular solar company and came to meet with us because he and I had talked about this, about doing this. This is about uh, three or four years ago. And um, it just made a lot of sense. And so we've done it since then and we've expanded it as different states had had different programs. So it's something that we're doing uh, as much as we can, wherever we have the opportunity to do it. I think it's such a brilliant idea for the reasons that you mentioned uh, outside of the environmental aspect of it, which is certainly good if, if you can collect power through sun and the photovoltaic cells, it makes a lot of sense. But even beyond that, just the economic side of it, A, you're bringing in additional power sources to a building, especially if it's in an area where the grid is already strained, that solar can actually help supplement any power requirements. And then if you can lease it, sell it back to the grid and add basically new NOI to a building on space that was wasn't even being used in the last place. I, I think it's a fantastic idea. Like I, I really think anyone that's on this call, whether you're uh, own property or you're brokered, like this, this is an opportunity to dramatically increase a building's value just through capitalizing the income that you get from leasing out roof space to solar. So I'm glad you elaborate on that. I, I find that absolutely fascinating. What has been the process that and you can speak high level on this, but in terms of ensuring that a building is structurally capable of handling those that solar panel weight, uh, and then any insurance issues, have you come across anything that that's been a challenge in that, uh, or is it just a, an extension that you're building these properties with that in mind down the road, anyways? It's a hundred percent a very good point, and um, I'm glad you said it because. In concept, it's wonderful for all buildings, but in reality, um, the cost outweighs certain benefits uh, if the building, it's less of a structural and more of a roof. And certain buildings, I mean, there are all kinds of reasons to and not to do on certain buildings to put those solar panels. You have more penetrations. Um, it could be dependent on if you had a couple recoats on your roof, say, suddenly, you add those panels on and it isn't structurally sound anymore. There's all kinds of reasons, but um, I leave that to our very capable uh, construction team, which is one of the reasons we have that vertical integration. And we have, uh, you know, on, on our risk, our risk side in the company we deal with the insurance. And so it's using different areas of the company who specialize in those things who for us are able to, maximize our efficacy but about doing this right about really getting it on each and building understanding the pros and the cons and understanding that we don't want to lock into a lease where we're going to be responsible for you know uh the roof and the roof isn't structurally sound for it but frankly a lot of the solar companies are are really in the know about that stuff and they're not going to want to invest in your roof if you don't have what's necessary in order for them to actually keep it up and running uh, and so I can't speak to the specifics on that. All I can say is that we have folks who are, uh, you know, experts in those things. And that way we're able to, uh, you know, plan effectively so we can maximize our use of them without, you know, incurring too much risk. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. Not not everyone owns $53 million and can have a vertically integrated risk risk management construction department. So if for those who, who aren't, just know that it's it's a it's a great idea in, in theory, but to ensure that you are checking structural insurance and all those issues. Uh, I, I want to get to the questions here in a second, uh, but 
just before we get to that, what what's your outlook for industrial? And and you can look at 2024, you can look look beyond, but what what do you think is in the forecast for industrial? Well, you're asking an industrial guy who only does industrial what I think of industrial. Um, so I'll, I mean, of course, like uh, yourself and, and many others, we have strong conviction in the space for all kinds of reasons. It comes down to, frankly, the supply chain costs, which haven't fundamentally changed, which is, you know, real estate is still the smallest component of your supply chain costs. And at three to six percent, even if you were at frankly ten percent, unlike a multifamily where, you know, once you exceed twenty percent of someone's earnings, it's difficult to get more money from rent from them because they can't afford to eat, type thing. Uh, in industrial, somebody can afford to pay more rent because they're able to lower their cost associated with more impactful elements like transport or labor in the supply chain and there's an offset there. So although they may double the rent, if they're able to save 5% on their transport cost, that doubling of the rent is much less impactful than that 5% savings is. And so we have a lot of runway to go in terms of the ability to increase rents in industrial. Um, that isn't to say industrial is immune to downturns. I mean, when it floods, everyone gets wet, right? And there's a simply less demand and less demand means, you know, uh, potentially lower rents and more downtime and all the things that go with that. I think from the longer term, you have in the U.S. at least virtually nobody starting new projects. And I'm, I'm saying that with some knowledge, like we're talking about last year was 14 percent of what it historically has been or, or I'm sorry, compared to the last 12 months before that, which wasn't even a heavy year in development, last year was even 14% of that. So everyone stopped developing. And that just comes down to debt and, and the cost of it. And, you know, if you can buy assets for lower than replacement, then people will and the market in flux. And so people just didn't develop. What does that mean? That means that after this leg of asset comes online, the stuff that has been in the works for the past two, three years or more, you got nothing in the pipeline. It's empty. And we forget that industrial, or many forget when they worry about industrial vacancy, it's still under 5% nationwide, at least for the US. And historically, 5% is very good. And every year, assets get older and they become obsolete. I mentioned assets infill earlier, but those are unique. There are a lot of other assets where they're obsolete. And so suddenly they're falling off that cliff and they're no longer great assets to leasing. And so you have less, less functional product when you don't have product coming online to meet tenant demand. And as much as tenant demand went up in COVID, it's a, a wonderful example because um, we were heavy buyers early in COVID. People thought we were nuts. I mean, there may have been some in our own company who thought the decisions were nuts. I mean, we were going at it full steam, find anything we could. When I was, you know, we were all locked in our homes and we're talking about like April, 2020 type thing. And May, 2020, we were closing a lot of deals and people were desperate and we were buying stuff for pennies. And what we recognized is 
look, we may all be stuck in our homes, but how are we going to get our stuff? We need it. And so all these projects, they've all been stopped. And so there went that flow of new development. We knew that, yes, there was some vacancy in certain areas, but in the end of the day, that'll get eaten up so quickly. And we were right. And we were right. And rents in certain markets went up 50 or 100% overnight because there was no product. And so I believe that it's going to take longer than a COVID cycle for, you know, that was a unique scenario, hopefully, that we don't have to experience again. But um, with very limited new supply coming online after this year, once things get humming again, you're not going to have sufficient industrial to keep up with the needs of the market. Industrial, I mean, if you can have all the industrial that's vacant today sit vacant and all the new supply coming online stay vacant as well, and you're hovering maybe around 6% vacancy in the U.S., that's nothing. And so that's not realistic. What's realistic is people continue to demand more industrial. E-commerce is continuing to make, a, make up a larger component of retail sales. There's the nearshoring. There's all kinds of other good variables that you know, fit the industrial need or have a need for industrial. And you don't have new product come online. And then you add really the icing on the cake and that's nimbyism. Nobody wants industrial in their backyard anymore. The gig is up, at least in the U.S. in most markets. We're talking about conservative cities. Forget about liberal cities. That was a certainty. But conservative cities who have put moratoriums on new industrial buildings, who have killed projects of ours in very red cities where otherwise they're very welcoming to new business. That's because people don't want to live next to an industrial building. And so you factor that in, well, what you've done is exacerbated the issue. And I think the long-term effect is higher rental rates and uh, a more valuable asset class. That was a masterclass in, in why uh, industrial looks so appealing. And I, I completely echo everything you said. It's, uh, I, there, there could be a pause. I mean, if we go through a little bit of economic downturn, there, there could be some downward pressure, but I think that that's temporary and coming out on the other side, I I'm, I'm long industrial for all those reasons.